Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm a nutrition and exercise physiology professor, and I'm a formerly competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I run Lift for Hope and Strength Guild. And today we've also got Mike Nelson helping me on this end. Hey, guys. And let's go ahead with the questions, Phil, and then we'll just do the news after we do some of your seminar questions. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, I'm up here in Northern California at Hercules CrossFit again uh, doing a seminar, and we thought we'd do another Q&A section. So um, I'm just going to go pick out one person at a time and have them kind of ask a question. We'll all jump on it. So uh, who wants to go first? Somebody's going to have to stand up. Here we go. Okay. From um, my bench, I'm hitting a plateau at 200 pounds. Um, I can hit 190 for too easy. I can do 195 just fine. But as soon as I hit 200 on the bar, it's like a mental block for me. Um, and I just can't get beyond that. Is there anything you guys suggest? As Tonight, as, we'll... Like, I can hit 195, no problem. Okay. As soon as I have 200 or anything else on the bar, I can't. Okay, did you hear that well, Lonnie, or do you want me to restate it? I did. In fact, you know what? I have a similar problem with 315 in the bench. Yeah. <laughs> I can routinely bench 300, 305, you know. So I'm curious what you have to say, Phil. Oh, boy. So you're leaving it all on me. Okay. No, I mean, normally this is – it's usually a numbers game and to me. When somebody has a problem like that, it's usually you got a number in your head. Um, so what I would do is program you down for a little bit. So we'd probably go like 80% of – of 200 and slowly work our way up over like eight weeks to where you're killing triples um, to get up to it. And I'd probably jump right over 200 and go to 205 uh, when we went for it. So I'd spend eight weeks going off of that um, and do more like five sets of three type stuff working up to it. Um, most likely where are you missing your lift is also yeah, off the chest. Off yeah. the chest. Um, it'd be a lot of pause work and dumbbell, dumbbell bench assistance work. Or ring push-ups, if you guys have ring. I think just from a practicality point of view, if you get to the point that you are just owning triples or sets of four with 190, you no, know what I mean? 185, yeah. Yeah, then so. you, and the I, confidence okay. will build. Right, right yeah. yeah. Your triples, seeing as your your weaknesses and a lot of upper back work. Um, usually up, for people that are weak off the chest, a lot of upper back work, mm-hmm. uh, lat work, stuff like that. Um but yeah, pause work, triples probably started 80, 75, 80% for five sets, three work up, you know, over eight weeks and pausing everything, um, to build the speed off the bottom. So who's next? Mine's actually the kind of the same question, okay. but with deadlift. I've been stuck at it like over a year okay. at 275 and okay. I can actually hit 275 for two. And then literally I put 280 on can't pull it off the ground. Uh, you won't budge off the ground. I can get it maybe half an inch, inch. Yeah. See, and this is a, that's a usual, that's the weird thing. I, it's a usual problem I've seen with women is that they can like hit something for five. You add five pounds and they don't move it. Um, again, I think it's a mental thing. If, if you're hitting it for two and then not hitting 280 for one. Yeah. Um, other than that, due to your weaknesses on the floor, I'd spend some time doing, you know, do a two to three months of uh, deficit work, standing on anywhere from two to four inches. <clears throat> and I don't believe in anything over triples for deadlift, so it'd be ones and threes, ones, twos, threes. Deadlift's one of those moves I just don't like going over that unless it's competition loss. So, well, I was just going to say, Mike, if you have any comments, you know, okay. throw them in, barge in. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to do this with someone, and I've never actually had a client where they ended up in this situation. But if you have someone there that lifts all the time, I'd like to run what I call the, the trash bag experiment, where you put like a trash bag or something over the visual representation of the weights on the end. Oh, I thought and you were going to say over the head. Yeah. <laughs> Me and my wife do that all the time. Yep. Add, add, so they don't know how much is on the bar. So they yeah. can't visually see it. And someone you trust to load it to make sure they're not going over and that type of thing. 
And then if you make it over it, then you know for sure, like Phil was saying, that it's a mental issue of, of seeing that weight on the bar type thing. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I do that a lot with lifters. It just won't, I won't tell them what's on the bar and we load a bunch yep. of changes. Yep. Um, and they'll end up hitting a PR and not know it. Cause you'll see a lot of, like the bench question and the deadlift question, there's a lot of mental blocks. I, I had the same one that Lonnie had with 315 on the bench. Um, and that's another reason I just don't believe in missing. You start, once you miss it once, you're like, ah, you miss it twice, then it's starting to get in your head. You miss it three, four times, and then it's, it's really a mind game and you're screwing yourself coming up to it. And, you know, I, I think you might actually be training your motor patterns to fail too. Yeah. You know, not yeah. just psychologically, but yeah. you're actually learning, you know, neurally learning to fail. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. What's next? Questions about anything? Here we go. Here comes one. All right. So as a CrossFitter, we do very squat-like movements almost every day or every other day throughout the week. For example, wall balls, back squat, even sometimes burpee has a squat in it. Um, so putting strength and CrossFit together, I should be squatting for, what, an hour or two once a week. But what about the rest of the time for CrossFit training? Should I um, take out the squats or how should I go about implementing the strength while also um, keeping in mind that I'll be squatting a couple more times in the training week without, I don't know, overtraining or getting an injury? Michael, let you touch on that first, and then I'll go. I don't have much to add on that, to be honest. I can only add this. My legs are rocked right now from squatting. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I can't imagine, like, trying to do burpees for an hour. You know what I mean? Um are you doing general programming then um, with everybody else? Sometimes. Okay. What I would do, what I would tell you to do, and you're a competitive crossfit. Yeah. It's realize that competitive, the highest level competitive crossfitters aren't going in and doing daily stuff. They're working on a plan all the time. It's, you know, four or five days a week. Um, everything is for a reason. It's not just doing shit to do shit. So they don't go do wall balls just because everybody else is doing wall balls. Type of thing. That's what I would do. I would get yourself on a plan where, and there's no reason you can't do squat-like moves all the time. You know, if, if you're, if your back squat workouts are screwing up a wall ball, then we got problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you are overtrained type of thing. So it would be, it would be get yourself on a dedicated program to make you better at what you're doing. Stop doing the trash work. Of course. That's what I do. So, um, that's also bringing in like for CrossFit, we're going to see the clean, we're going to see the snatch. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be the same for all of that. If I see failure in my snatch, I should probably take a little bit of time off rest. Yeah. Probably... And also since you're doing all that, your squat workout doesn't need to be two hours long. Of course. Your strength portion might be five sets of three. If that takes you two hours, then all right. you know, side of it. and it's just punching that clock. Remember you're all we're looking to do is consistently make progress. As long as those five sets of three are going up a little bit, we're going. Somewhere. All right. Does that make sense at all? Perfect. Then. Okay. Yeah. So it's, I mean, you don't need, as a crossfitter, you don't need to do a powerlifting workout where we're going in, we're squatting, we're doing that. Much. Because the squat is a small portion of what you have to do. It's a big thing. If your squat goes up, other things follow it. But you have to have, it's that pie thing. All right. Your pie has a bunch of little fucking pieces. Yeah. Whereas my pie has three pieces. I got a bench squat deadlift. So I don't have to mess with so much stuff. So it's, yeah. But I mean, is squat your weakness? No, I just, General understanding, like last week, for instance, we had squat like four times within a five-day mm-hmm. period, and towards the end, I wasn't feeling so good doing yeah, squat. Yeah, no, I'm sure. So it's just realizing on day four, day five, just get in what you can. Right. Take your strength thing serious. The other stuff, if it's not an actual competitive thing, just punch the clock. What you're worried about is those five sets three consistently going on. All right. Thank you. I just had one quick thing to add on that, too, and it, it seems that kind of goes without saying, but make sure you actually write down and monitor exactly what you're doing and your performance on the things that are your actual goals. No, I agree. So a lot of times it's the density work only, um, but if your goal is, like Phil was saying, more of a max strength, well, make sure you're looking to see what you're doing on that and then see if that's improving over time, too. But, yeah, tracking, monitor everything, track it, anything that's normal. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Who's next? Nutrition questions. Any questions? Supplement questions. I had a question for uh, Lonnie and Mike uh, regarding Nick Bird and uh, Chad Waterbury's uh, high-frequency training. Um, I was wondering if we would kind of – I know 
it seems like it's chasing the two proverbial rabbits, but would it be advantageous at all to use the, the four sets of uh, 14 at 30% load as your warm-up sets before going into your actual work sets? My actual preference is to do that sort of stuff at the end, um, just because I guess I don't want to expend my nervous system resources or muscle glycogen or whatever, you know, before I'm I'm trying to attack some heavier weights. I mean, I don't know if um, Mike feels any differently, but for me, that's an I think at the end is the ideal time to do that sort of stuff because you can fire your nervous system maximally because you're fresh at the beginning and then do some of the higher rep stuff at the end just to ensure, you know, some conditioning and muscle protein synthesis and whatnot. Um, is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. Mike, what do you think? Um, <clears throat> my thought on that is that if I had a choice, I would actually put that stuff on a separate day and increase the frequency. So if you're doing like, let's say just three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, mostly compound strength-based stuff, I would put like the old school bodybuilding, you know, pump routine type stuff on even a Monday and Thursday. Because what I've noticed is that it, it seems to help with hypertrophy. And it also seems to help a lot of times with clients with joint pain. And I don't know if that's just, you know, lighter unloading movements, blood flow, or, you know, what have you. Um, and that way you would still have another stimulus for, you know, protein synthesis, which, you know, depending on what you read, can stay elevated 24, 48 hours, maybe sometime around there. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it's very hard for me, and it's something that I've been doing for the last eight weeks is, you know, will I lose any strength or size doing a high-frequency model? You know, because I'm only doing literally two or three sets. I'm doing like whole body, almost, you know, circuits. Uh, I can't help, though, but drift into almost um, undulate it, you know, almost like what you're saying, Mike, where some yep. days I'll do heavy. Uh, some days I'll do the, you know, 20 rep sets, you know, a la Nick Bird kind of thing. Um, you know, it, it's actually I just read an article. I think it was in Flex magazine that Sergio Oliva, believe it or not, used to be real big uh, into the high frequency stuff. But he always did high intensity but super brief sessions that were very frequent, I guess. But as I was reading this article, I just kept running through my head. You know, this depends on your hormonal status yeah. as well, yeah. of course. So you know, that answer your question. Yeah, thank you. Next, here comes Jerome. Yeah, I just got a question about uh, rest. Um, I'm pretty much like any crosser. I tend to overtrain and rest enough. I kind of work on that. But my question has to do with somebody of advanced age and wants to weight train to get strong. Um, and you know, generally trains of people that are 30 years younger than them. What should they look for? Or what should the uh, – is there a rule of thumb to go by as you become a master? What was the age again? 60. Well, one of the things I'm noticing already in my mid-40s is that I cannot recover as fast yeah. as I used to. So I, I, one of the things that I always push is purposeful recovery. Mm -hmm. Like time is a necessary component. But, for example, if you do blood work on people and you look at muscle damage markers, and I'm not going to bore you with which ones, like creatine kinase, whatever. There, I did it. But it's, it's going to actually – the whole turnover process is going to happen better when you move, you know, as, as if you just sit. So – Purposeful recovery can take all kinds of um, forms, you know, hot, cold contrast showers, stretching at the end of your workout or even outside of your workout. Um, some people like, you know, 20-minute naps in the afternoon, um, you know, obviously massage and soft tissue work. The other thing I'd add is the biggest mistake I see people do is they go from zero to everything. Um, I think Jim lines out a good good deal in his in his books where you know he adds on a little bit at a time you start out with a base and add one thing instead of jumping from nothing to what everybody all these people are doing go from three sessions to three sessions plus to, 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 and once you can handle that for two weeks add another add another don't go from zero to trying to hang with everybody right away. and if i can add one thing to that um once you're middle-aged or older I, I'm a big believer, and I don't have as much experience with middle-aged and older women, but for the guys, you certainly get strong enough to hurt yourself. So, you know, it's almost like the analogy Rob used to use is your engine becomes so powerful, your 
your frame of your car can't handle it anymore, yeah. you know. And I think that's one thing to keep in mind too is it might not just be age slowing recovery, but you might be able to do things to yourself that when you were twenty you weren't capable of performing, you know. And that just calls for more recovery. You're in not itself. strong enough to hurt yourself, man. You need to get to work. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, um, blood work. Do you suggest blood work for uh, for athletes just to see where they stand? Well, the kind of blood work that I'm talking about usually is done in a in a time course, you know, for uh, three or four days after a workout. But there are certain things that are simply going to go up, and it's it's a natural part of the process. Um, and like Phil said, as you start to add in, you know, you teach your body recovery ability. Um, and I mentioned this last time we had Chad on the show, but um, you will see what Priscilla Clarkson, who is a famous uh, researcher on the East Coast, called an armor plating effect, where you don't dump as many of these mm-hmm. enzymes into your blood. And, you know, the insult or the challenge that originally was so soreness inducing uh, just doesn't cause as much damage anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, I think the body is highly adaptable. Yeah. And um, probably the best thing we can say, yeah, even keeping in mind that you might be strong enough to do things to yourself that you couldn't in your 20s. And, it, you know, it depends when you started your training and everything anyway. But I, I think it's, it's something to consider, you know, that there's a three to five day window, depending on what I'm looking at in the lab, where things are resetting, you know. And so if you're going to be back in there um, before, let's say, three days, probably minimum for a single, you know, back at the same body part, you can't trash that in the same way that you would have in a 90-minute workout with tons of negatives and all that sort of stuff, at least in my opinion. And, you know, that's only the tissue side, you know. Mike, what do you think about the nervous system side as far as this goes? Um, yeah, I think, you know, monitoring your performance, making sure you're, you know, better than what you were doing before. The whole, like, nervous system fatigue, central fatigue versus peripheral I don't know, all that stuff seems the research is still kind of split. But yet people will definitely, you know, have times where they just neurologically don't feel up to it. They're, you know, weaker in the gym, but tissue-wise, you know, they feel fine. There's no soreness, um, that type of thing, too. Um, and then one other thing, too, is you may consider adding more protein. It's a study by Yang that came out last year. And granted, right the mean age of the people in the study, I think, was like 71. But the takeaway was that they needed... 40 grams of a whey protein to get the same, you know, protein building or muscle protein synthesis response as people who are in their 20s. So you may need, you know, more protein than the people you're actually training with too, possibly. Okay. Um, There was one more quick question, Stan. Because you're talking about, you know, going in the gym feeling good, but you really can't do anything even though you feel good. Is there sense behind just shutting down for five days and doing something totally different, like just riding a bicycle a couple times during that period of time? Yes. In my opinion, yeah, yes. I think a lot of people Yeah, I agree with that, yeah. Especially if you've done something um, over a planned course, you know, you've had programming for eight or 12 weeks or something like that. I'm a huge fan of that. I mean, you're not going to completely refill your glycogen stores probably in one day. You know, I love to take three to five days, like a work week between programming sections mm-hmm. and just rest yeah. i mean it's amazing when you come back you're energized your pumps are better and in fact um you guys were mentioning workout logs i'm such a huge fan at the bottom every time i write down what i did performance wise i always jot down my hunger and my motivation and you can do that just on a one to seven scale and then what you're really doing is you're looking from very very low to very very high you know, what's the trend lately? If you are always running six and sevens, you know, for motivation for the gym and you've been three or two for like three or four days in a row, three or four sessions in a row, that's telling you something. And I think that's a hint to the central nervous system side of things. Like Mike was saying, even if you're not sore, you know what I mean? But monitoring like that, not just your lifts, not just your weights, but things like hunger, motivation, or if you're really worried about overtraining, even your ability to get to sleep at night. These are all other things that could be suggestive of, you know, that psychological slash central nervous system. Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of people get scared to take weeks off. Um, And it'll actually do them some good instead of doing them bad. And my biggest one, like you said, is if I start not wanting, not really, usually I have a big desire to go train. If that starts going away, I know I'm in trouble. And it's time to take some time if I don't want to. Well, thanks, guys. Next. Anybody have anything? Here we go. 
quick question about supplements. I take just a basic multivitamin, some glucosamine, chondroitin, and fish oil. Am I missing anything or I add anything to that? The only thing I could suggest would be um, for most people, you know, creatine monohydrate works. Mm -hmm. It works for one repetition maximum. Um, I mean, there's over 350 papers now on creatine, and there's like a 75% consensus that it works for either one rep max or repeat explosive performance. Most drugs don't have that kind of track record. Um, So that's another what I would call a sort of a staple supplement. I mean, it's not an essential nutrient, you know, like a vitamin or an omega-3 fatty acid, but it's, you know, it's one of those supplements that might be missing from your list. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, there's there's more research on creatine than just about anything else. I mean, more than ketchup or anything you find just in your grocery store, for crying out loud. Um, and I know you're probably up in California, but possibly look at vitamin D. There's some... Yeah. Interesting testing of a friend of mine. She was testing uh, track people in Florida, and you think Florida track athletes? What the hell? They would never be low in vitamin D, and a lot of them actually were. Uh, one, maybe because they're athletes, and then two, most of their training time was actually in the later evening. So even five, six o'clock, you're not getting a ton of vitamin D, even if you're outside. Then, so that may be one to look at. If I can tack onto that, I read a paper. I don't remember the author at this point. I mentioned it in an earlier episode, but. 3,300 units of vitamin D daily over the course of a full year. I mean, it takes a while. Um, raised testosterone like 15% or something in, in uh, young men. Well, so vitamin D is, I think we have to remember, it itself is a hormone. Yep. And like Mike said, often we're either covered up or indoors. I mean, powerlifters, you know, a lot of the stuff you do is indoors. I mean, if we get outdoors, great. But, yeah, you're not always going to be getting that probably 20 minutes of sun on your face and arms three or four times a week necessarily. You know, so. Okay, sounds Thanks. good. Next. If not, we can move on. Here comes two people. They're just shy. So I have a nutrition question. Okay. Um. So I'm almost 38. Okay. Looking to uh, get stronger, but also be leaner. Okay. Um. But I have a hard I have a hard time staying on track with a diet program. Okay. I work night shift. So switching back and forth between days and nights a lot of times kind of screws me up. Do you recommend um, doing something, you know, where you eat every couple of hours? Do you recommend scheduling, you know, having like three meals, two snacks? What kind of a plan do you recommend to do? What does your schedule allow (laughs) on your night shifts? Well, I'm a nurse, so Mm -hmm. I usually, uh, in an eight-hour shift, I get to eat uh before I start my shift, okay. I get a 30-minute break, or I'm supposed to at some point during my shift, then I can eat. Then based on that, I would go for like the three squares type thing, just because you're kind of forced into that. I would use that half an hour to put a bunch of food in. I mean, you physically can't, I mean, your schedule doesn't allow mm-hmm. short feedings, you know, type of thing. So, I mean, that's one of those things where we have to deal with real life. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you say it, guys? Yeah, and I would say if you can um, pre-prep as much as possible, you know, with what you're taking to work, for example. I mean, let's face it, working and eating at night, there's been studies. In fact, I think it might have been the nurse's health study that nighttime feedings, you know, you just tend to lay down more body fat than during the day. Your metabolic rate's different. Hormone, hormones are different. Uh, but if you could do something like do some kind of pre-prep and then, Phil, you've mentioned this before, eat something clean and then have something fun, you know, and I would do that with athletes too, you know, for every, everything that you want to have that's more of a fun food that you would consider off diet, first eat something clean, like that, you know, chicken breast sandwich or, or whatever. And then partly it comes down to recipes, you know, what can you do fast and, you know, have on hand, take with you. But I would say if you could make yourself eat the good stuff first, and when, when you say stay on the diet, I don't know if you mean flavor wise or just timing, but either way, Get yourself something pre-prepped and in place. So all you have to do is throw it in a bag, you know, insulated bag, take it to work. And then if you want to eat other stuff as well, you just do it after you do the clean stuff. I don't know if that helps at all. The only comment I have real quick is I agree with, you know, both of those. Um, You could make an argument, especially when you're coming off night shift and switching back to a normal schedule, that, you know, for that period you may consider having a lower carbohydrate intake. 
just because your, you know, metabolism um, is insulin sensitivity and that kind of stuff may be a little bit goofy for a while. But I wouldn't necessarily do that first. I would do the other steps first, and that would be more of a minor tweaking type thing. It is a good point, Mike, because, I mean, let's face it, other than protein, which is fairly yeah. stable around a gram per pound or so throughout the year with people, your choice for restriction is either going to be, or boosting, you know, either way, is fat mm. or carb. And I agree, if your sleep patterns are off and nighttime feedings and all that kind of stuff, I might target carbs first, especially the refined stuff. Yeah. yeah I think in general, uh, when I bring my meals to work, it tends to be a meat and a vegetable. Yeah. And that's what I eat in the middle of the night, you know. Um, Whereas if you buy something there, it's going to be different. Exactly, because yeah. all they have is vending machines at yeah. night. But uh, what I am finding is that first thing in the morning then, um, you know, as soon as I get off of work, I'm hungry, but I also have to go right to sleep. Yeah. So I get up and do it all over again. So um, that last meal before I go to bed should try to stick mostly to the same kind of thing, like protein. Things. I'd say yes. What do you guys think? I think yes, and I think like Mike and uh, both of you guys were saying, write it down too. I mean, if you keep a diet log for a couple of days – um, you know, it'll help make you more aware because oftentimes the clients and patients that I've worked with before as a nutritionist, they think they're eating a certain way until they write it down. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I didn't think it was that much, you know, or, oh, I think. <laughs> but I don't know if you're like me at all, but sometimes at the end of a 10 hour day, I'm exhausted and I'm in a little bit of a who gives a damn sort of mood as far as, you know, I want a little bit of a comfort food. I don't feel like having nothing but a dry chicken breast at that point. You know what I mean? And if that's the case, keeping a diet log can help because um, maybe you could come up with alternatives, you know, like I said, fast pre-prepped recipes so you can just, you know, knock it back and then go to sleep, you know, that sort of thing. And so I tend so. to go to something easy like a piece of fruit, which, of course, is carbs. So I'm like, oh, I'll go, you know, get like a piece of fruit and um, in some scrambled egg whites. But I'm thinking, like, is that is that enough? Because if I then I wake up again, I'm starving. starving again. Yeah, and you're probably not having <laughs> enough, and that could be a problem. Um, I don't. I'm not a big fan of people that hate fruits, though. I mean, I think if you had a good protein source, some vegetables and the fruit, I think you're you're good. Too many health benefits. Yeah, I've, I've never seen somebody agreed. get fat off apples. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just never done it. And that's a, that's an interesting example because uh, I don't think the same thing would be true of cider. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Next. Um, so I compete for powerlifting, and uh, the day of the meets, I get really, really nervous. Yeah. Um, and I just want to see if I can find something to eat maybe in the morning that can help calm my stomach and not like. Do so you get like upset? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> something that's not gonna like that's gonna keep me sustained for the whole day almost but not like yeah i think you gotta get to the point where you need to eat during the meet you need to find something and i've had to deal with this with other people because i get nervous to the point where i don't want to eat but i need to yeah um i mean even like i've had people where it's they just live on like snickers bars during the meet something that's small dense and they'll sit well um, so that I don't want to come out one way or the other. Exactly, really. and usually you're yeah. <laughs> so what I don't warn people against is like don't don't go to like morning of the meat and eat something way off track what you normally would. Okay. So. We'll do one more, guys. Does that sound good? We got lunch waiting on us here. It's a similar question to hers. Um, just to touch on that more, what about the adrenaline spikes? Okay. I did my first meet uh, earlier this month. And okay. It was a it was a push pull, so it was just bench and deadlift. Mm-hmm. I, I did really well, but um, felt so great after 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 bench press. I had this big crash after I after I kicked ass on bench press. Okay. And I almost lost it, but I, I was able to come back when deadlifts came around again. Okay. How do you handle those adrenaline spikes where you're almost pass out after, at the end of it? You come back around. And that's just that might be it. Might be just your first meet thing. Yeah. yeah. No. No. It makes sense. Just like, um, Oh yeah, you don't hear anybody, you don't see anybody that's there, and you're yeah. just all jacked up. Yeah, you're hearing it. Yeah. That might change in time, you know. It might be just it was your first meet, and you're so amped up, um, and you get used to it. I mean, I'm I know that when I go up there to the platform, I'm gonna be hair standing on end. You're just jacked up, um, and it's learning. It might be the same as hers. It's just learning to reserve it, 
it's going to turn itself on. If you're any type of competitor, you don't have to turn it on. They're going to call your name. You're going to go up there and yeah, sing it in front of freaking people, up. and it's going to happen. Uh, I don't try and get people to turn it on because um, then you're amping yourself up too much all the time. Um, and I purposely try and keep it pretty chill in the gym um, for that reason because I know if I can hit it in the gym when I'm not in that atmosphere, I'm going to kill it in a meet. Um, other than that, it's the same thing. It's right after it, go relax, sit down, get away from the meat. You know you have some time because there's usually a flight or two other people before you. You need to remove yourself and just, just go relax, drink some water, you know, do the breathing Mike was talking about, stuff like that. Would, wouldn't you guys say the same thing pretty much? Yeah, and I sometimes even if you if you're not comfortable just focusing on your breath, which is really hard to do for long periods of time, actually. There are some, uh, uh, you could get relaxation audio for free all over the internet from different university departments and that sort of thing. You just type in, you know, muscle relaxation or progressive relaxation audio. It's probably all over YouTube and there's MP3 files. Again, go to a legitimate source like a university psych department or some .edu website. But they will literally talk you through tensing and relaxing your muscles, feeling different levels of tension while you breathe. And then you, they're 15 minutes, 20 minutes long, and maybe that would help because you're like, I'm too nervous. I can't just focus on my breath. Maybe if you listen to something and yeah. just follow along with the, the guys or the, the lady has a very relaxing voice, you know what I mean? That might be helpful too. Yeah, I agree with that. A lot of it's just sort of state management, you know, making sure you stay in a – a good state and like Phil say, not too, you know, overhyped. If you have time in training, you can do sort of like a mock, you know, meet where you're doing all, you know, three lifts during the day with longer rest periods and all that kind of stuff. If you have time to just as a sort of like a simulation type practice or just do the fill and just do a lot more meets. <laughs> yeah, you can do that. Once you do enough meets, you'll just get comfortable. I think that's the best solution. I mean, I'm a hypocrite here because I, I haven't competed in powerlifting, but I can tell you from my days in competitive martial arts or even bodybuilding, the more you do it, the more it, it's like brushing your teeth after a while. That's a, yeah. You know, I, people come up to me all the time and say, why are you so relaxed? It's like, well, you know, I'm just used to it. You know, this is another training. So, um, no, that's good. I think we'll end it there, guys. And, and you guys add some news. Cool. Cool. Thanks, guys. That was awesome. Ah. Thank you. I will talk to you guys later. See you. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So, uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for 69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the 99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180 day rentals and one year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. 
Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, Mike, I've got some news here. Uh, just a couple of things. Strength and Muscle Sport News. One is sort of a tirade here. <laughs> so let's get to some of this. I don't know that it's news. In fact, it was in Time Magazine in uh, late May. But um, it's just uh, something that irks me. And that's that. It, it, well, let me just read this to you. It's a, it, this is from healthland.time.com, May 24th. Um, how much exercise will it take to work off that burger? <laughs> you know, and it says menu, menus may soon tell you this. Well, what I don't like about this whole thing is they make it look like energy balance is all just what you're swallowing versus how much you're jogging. And that's not accurate. For one thing, most of the energy you expend every day is, you know, 65% maybe basal metabolic rate. Yep. The, the other thing is that's dynamic, right? It goes up and it goes down. It's not fixed and static. As a dietitian, I would have to do things like calculate a Harris-Benedict equation or a Mifflin-St. Jor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, usually that takes into account your height, weight, and your age, but nothing about thyroid status or whether your metabolism is slow or fast because of how you've been eating lately. And I think the biggest peeve I have with this is it makes exercise look like it's nothing but anti-eating, and that's absurd. Exercise changes people from the subcellular level all the way up. You are a different creature than someone who sits on the couch all day long. Anyway, that was just sort of a gripe of mine. It talks about a study from the British Medical Journal and you know calories in, calories out. And although I think that's a good place to start for weight management, it's not the end-all, be-all, and I think most importantly, it completely underemphasizes one of the best things about exercise is it makes you a better fat-burning machine, right? More of the calories you yep. expend are, in fact, from fat. I don't know what you think about all that. Yeah, it, it's funny because I looked in the literature a long time ago because you, you get these questions all the time from clients, and it's a good question of, you know, well, how many calories, you know, did I actually burn during exercise? and you can put people in the lab and do, you know, metabolic heart studies and all this kind of stuff. And in general, when you when you look at it, just at the sheer numbers, it's kind of depressing. <laughs> you know, for, right? It is like yeah. how much you know exercise you'd have to do to burn off X calories. But the hard part about that is that it it assumes that that's you know, like you were saying, that the substrate only. And we know that, you know, for example, eating protein. Um, triggers, you know, protein synthesis once you get above a certain amount. So if you only looked at like the 10 grams that's deposited in the muscle per day, you're like, wow, well, I should have to eat like a couple ounces of protein and I'll be fine. Well, what you, that doesn't take into account is that you need a, a threshold dose to get the signaling response to trigger your body to actually start building the protein so there's a lot of, you know, inefficiencies in the process. And, you know, it's just more than just, you know, calories in and calories out. That's true. Um, but like you were saying, how your body reacts to things with exercise, you know, is dramatically different. You know, if you look at intermuscular triglycerides from, you know, athletes, that's usually considered a good thing. If you look at the same thing from someone who doesn't exercise, you know, they have local insulin resistance. They have all these other problems. Right. Right. Yes, indeed. Well, you mentioned protein synthesis, for example. I mean, uh, there was a – let me step back. There was a meta-analysis, right? And listeners, you many of you know that's a study of other studies. So it's a fairly powerful bit of evidence. Uh, Krieger, 2006, I think. And they actually looked at macronutrient profile, you know, and the whole question was a touchy one, which is, is a calorie a calorie? Mm-hmm. And um, the answer, his answer was basically no. You know, the lower carbohydrates, slightly higher protein diets lead to more leanness, you know, when you look across multiple different studies. Uh, and like you said, I mean, protein synthesis, when you trigger that, that's energy costly. You know, protein has a higher thermic effect of food. There's lots of things to consider there um, as, as opposed to just calories. And, you know, we just – when we spoke to the uh, – we're answering the question of the one uh, nurse – um, 
or even when, you know, I think when Graham Thomas was on a couple of years ago, he made some great points about we all stay up much later. Mm-hmm. You know, we work late. We, the Internet is a reason that it's always on, you know, a, a reason to stay up late, whereas we got bored and went to sleep probably at 10 or 11 most nights in the past. Um, I mean, ask any group that you're in front of how many people stayed up past midnight. And, you know, almost everybody has their hand up. So I think it's also the timing issue, too. Anybody who says a calorie is a calorie, um, I'd like to ask, well, you know, so you're saying if I eat five meals of almost nothing but protein during the day, in you know, at regular intervals, you're telling me my body composition is going to be identical if I do that exact same thing at 1 a.m. with cheese puffs? <laughs> you know, there's there's no way, you know, there's just no way. So like I always said, I think a ca- calorie balance is a good start to all this. But this whole thing about how many minutes or hours you have to exercise to get rid of that 700-calorie meal or what have you, I think it underestimates exercise. The purpose of exercise is not just to burn calories. It's to reconstruct yourself on a very fundamental level so you're better at burning fat, for example. Anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's it's actually the second law of thermodynamics more related to entropy than it is the first law if people really want to get in and argue about it. And like you said, the... The thing they forget is that these studies are, you know, if you look at a metabolic chamber, yeah, we lock people in a room and we measure everything that goes in and out. Of course, over the short term, calories in, calories out, you know, matter. But that's not realistic to free-living humans either. And we know that by what you eat, that will also affect how much you eat. You know, right, like you're giving the cheese puffs example. You know, there's studies showing that it's much easier to overeat you know, on things that have higher refined, you know, sugars, low uh, protein, low fiber, that type of thing. So what you eat, the, the quality of what you eat will also affect how much of it you eat, too. So, Yeah, it's a good point. And that's one of the sticky things about energy balance, yep. you know, calories in, calories out, is when you measure people's metabolic rate, I mean, calorie balance does hold true uh, literally, mm-hmm. but in a free living environment, the output side changes, yep. or like you said, because of the satiety value of things like fiber or protein, the input side changes too. Yep. So it's, it's, yes, yeah, not that easy. It's complicated, unfortunately. So this next one is about beet juice. This is Journal of Applied Physiology, May 2013. Um, it says beetroot juice and exercise, pharmacodynamic and dose response relationships. So apparently it says dietary supplementation with beetroot juice has um, inorganic nitrates uh, that can increase plasma nitrate concentrations, reduce blood pressure, and may positively influence uh, the response to exercise. Uh, but it says we don't know much about the, the necessary dose. They did a balanced crossover design, so that's a good model. Uh, let's see. Um 140 and 280 milliliters of beetroot juice reduced the steady state VO2 during moderate exercise um, by about 2 to 3%. That's interesting. So maybe it makes you more efficient oxidatively. I'm not sure. Um, and it says time to exercise failure was extended by 14%, uh, you know, almost regardless of dose. So the results suggest that the dose doesn't really matter but that the findings may have important implications for both cardiovascular health, you know, because you're reducing the oxygen demand at any given workload, uh, and exercise performance. I don't know what you think about this, but usually I think, A, you know, we're always looking for something new (laughs) in a way. But the other thing is, you know, time to failure tests, they've been around for a long time, and I don't see a lot of real-world application of a lot of that. Uh, I mean, how many times do you literally go out and start exercising continuously until you drop? You know, um, I don't know. Maybe maybe some events, certainly a, a marathon or something might be close to that. Um, but time to exhaustion tests, I always just thought were a little odd. I don't know. Yeah, I, the study that I actually did on energy drinks, I had the choice of doing a time trial or um, sort of ride time to exhaustion or fatigue. And it's kind of the catch-22. I, I agree with what you're saying that, for most people, the the time to you know failure or exhaustion doesn't necessarily transfer to sporting performance, because like you said, like if you're going to run a marathon, right, it's how long it's going to take you to cover you know 26.2 miles. So it's how long it's going to take you to do that. You don't just go out and run so you can't run anymore and see you know who ran the farthest. Um, the hard part that I was stuck with though is that 
a lot of the early, you know, caffeine data was all ride time to exhaustion. So yes, right. The yep. catch-22 is that if, if I did a, you know, a time trial, I have to make sure there's, you know, familiarization and all that kind of stuff. It's usually better with more elite athletes, more, you know, reproducible. But then it's a different format than all the early caffeine trial. And if you argue that caffeine is the main ergogenic in an energy drink, now you're comparing two different trial formats. So I flip-flopped back and forth and ended up doing a ride time to exhaustion. So now I can compare it to earlier caffeine work. The downside is that the reviewers argue, and rightfully so, that that doesn't indicatively tell us if you're going to perform better in most sporting performances, which is actually true. The, the downside is you have to pick one or the other, you know, and you can make arguments for both, too. Sure. Oh, and, you know, you just watch your conclusion, I yeah. guess. You know, as long as you're not concluding, oh, you know, I can run 20 more minutes, therefore I'm going to – my right. marathon time will right. be better, you know. And I know you don't do that kind of thing. But, yeah, I think that's the other thing, too. Fortress will sometimes say on the podcast, oh, Lonnie, you know, how much of this really pans out to anything <laughs> earth-shattering? You know, and I, I always say the same thing. You know, Rob, it's a game of yeah. inches, you know, and and you can add up certain things. Certainly, if something like beetroot juice, you know, is – or probably more potently caffeine is going to do something like let me exercise much longer before I completely give up and, you know, fatigue out. That's certainly suggestive of good things, you yeah, know. I did, so is it proof? Yeah, I did find one other study, too. There's a, some newer studies on it. This one's actually similar to what you found, uh, 2010, Journal of Applied Physiology. Uh, dietary nitrite supplementation enhances muscle contraction efficiency during knee extensor exercises in humans. This is from Bailey. And very similar to what you found is that it appears to decrease the oxygen cost of doing the exercise, which would hint at that it's making your body a little bit more efficient at doing it. Again, similar to what you found, it yeah, statistically significant. Is it a massive change? No, it's it's still a pretty small change. Right. I can see for cardiac patients, and I won't go into it right now. You know, myocardial sure. oxygen demand and all that, and ischemia and all that. But right, I can see where. It might be interesting, and I think one of the things that might be interesting about what we're talking about is it's a non-stimulant yep. ergogenic aid, which are sort of few and far mm -hmm. between, actually, in a lot of ways. So, Okay, I have two more here um, that are about protein and muscle protein synthesis, and one of them is something I've already mentioned, uh, but I just wanted to revisit a little because it has to do with the whole anabolic brownie, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> beta test that I've been doing. This was the um, Church Ward uh, hyphenated then, uh, Journal of Physiology 2012. This was the interesting paper um, that Stu Phillips was involved in where they actually fed a suboptimal dose of protein, but they gave leucine with it. And I, I covered this in an earlier episode, but what I have really been struck by is, I mentioned this on our Facebook page, but a lot of this stuff needs to move from scientific curiosity into product or application phase, I think. And as an engineer, mm -hmm. I, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you're taking something from concept to something that's real. And um, what struck me was this. Basically, um, they, go, they start off saying leucine is a nutrient regulator of muscle protein synthesis by activating mTOR and possibly other proteins in this cellular pathway. Uh, they took 24 males, healthy guys. They gave you their 25 dose of whey. 25 grams, or 6.25 grams of whey, which is obviously suboptimal, with um, about 5 grams worth of leucine. Um, and here's what they found. Muscle protein synthesis was increased above fasting uh, at 1 to 3 hours um, in both the fed state without exercise and in the prior exercise fed state. Okay, so whether you're exercising or not, muscle protein synthesis increases uh, in both conditions. It says, in summary, a low dose of whey protein supplemented with leucine was effective, as effective uh, as complete whey, as 25 grams of whey in stimulating uh, postprandial muscle protein synthesis. Now, they did go on to say that if you're specifically looking after exercise, the 25 gram regular dose might be good. But that's why I started thinking, what is it that I've always wished? You know, I like brownies, for <laughs> example. And I want to have an excuse to eat them <laughs> in a way, but 
you know, a legitimate excuse. And what what hit me about this was 6.25 grams of protein. That's no problem. I mean, brownie batter or cake batters of different kinds, they're very forgiving to adding the protein. You know, obviously, when you put egg egg white, for example, in a recipe, it'll, it'll help with some of the, the structure and the rising of it and whatnot. So why not do this, right? This is This study says to me, you you can bring the protein level down to such an extent if you spike it with leucine that it's going to be more versatile in recipes, basically. So um, what I'm working on right now, these brownies are um, they have 6.3 grams of protein, which is exactly <laughs> the you know the, the dose uh, that this group you know Philip's group was looking at. Um, I've only got about two grams of leucine in each brownie instead of five. So I don't know how forgiving they're going to be with, uh, you know, throwing in more and more raw leucine. They're very forgiving to the protein powder. Um, so anyway, I'm going to keep tweaking this. They're probably the first batch that I'll send out in June. I'm still looking for some people, by the way, listeners. I've got about half a dozen people. I need some more. Uh, just to basically do a taste test, look at the nutrient content, do a little questionnaire for me, like, you know, I thought that was great. I think this is a, a good excuse, you know, that if I want to sit around and have my coffee for a snack, I can actually ha- get some muscle protein synthesis out of it, you know, because a, a piece of cake or a donut or a brownie by itself is sure as heck not going to do this, you know. But it just comes back to the, the leucine content of a meal is a huge driver of muscle protein synthesis, you know. And outside of a workout, especially according to this paper, you just don't need 25 grams of, of whey necessarily. So... I think that's fascinating stuff. And then here's the new study, and I don't know if you've heard of this yet, Mike, but um, Wilkinson, uh, also in collaboration with Stu Phillips' group. This is from University of Nottingham in the UK. It says effects of leucine and its metabolite uh, HMB, beta-hydroxy-beta-methylbutyrate, right, on human skeletal muscle protein metabolism. So this goes on to say, uh, by the way, this is May 2013, so this is spanking new as compared to the 2012 paper I was just mentioning. But um, of all nutrients, the single amino acid leucine possesses the most marked anabolic characteristics in acting as a trigger element for the initiation of protein synthesis. Our objective was to measure muscle protein anabolism in response to leucine and HMB. So I thought, Mm -hmm. here we go, right? This is a group. Let me give everybody some background. When I first started hearing about HMB from Steve Nissen's group, um, it was kind of controversial, if I remember right. I mean, Nissen's group kept showing great things. Other groups not always showing also great things. They on it, too. <laughs> exactly. I'm glad you're saying that because that's yeah. what I noticed, too. You know, So the group that has the patent, it's the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, most other people or at least other multiple other labs saying, I don't see what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And so it looked fishy. So when I see this group do it, I'm like, okay, here's a head-to-head comparison. Um and let's see, Orly consumed 3.42 grams of uh, HMB, providing 2.4 grams of pure HMB. They compared it with um, a comparable amount of leucine. Here's the, the bottom line. Leucine stimulated muscle protein synthesis um, 110% versus HMB, which increased it 70%. So... Uh, this looks like just straight leucine, you know, raw numbers, 40% better at stimulating muscle protein synthesis. Um, interestingly, both did, and I wouldn't be surprised, right, if listeners, if you're not familiar, HMB is just a metabolite of leucine. Um, it says um, both increased the anabolic signaling uh, effect. It was This was more pronounced with leucine, like we just said. Uh, it says, however, um, HMB consumption also attenuated muscle protein breakdown 57% in an insulin-dependent manner. I'm sorry, insulin-independent manner. So um, maybe there's an anti-catabolic side, and listeners who are familiar with HMB might say, well, that's we already knew that. Well, marketers are telling you that. Anecdotally, people are telling you that. But I want to see something in print, peer-reviewed like this from the Journal of Physiology. So um looks like leucine is more anabolic. But maybe HMB has some, you know, maybe its real benefit is going to be on the anti-catabolic side. Uh, yeah, I know, sure. um, I've heard, you know, Dr. Jacob Wilson, he's looked at uh, HMB free acid, which is a slightly different 
version of HMB, and I think there's one study out, British Journal of, uh, I don't remember, um, looking at that, and they've got some other studies underway that, you know, like you said, in, in athletes who are training really hard, you know, maybe a little bit beneficial. Um, and back to your point, too, about the five grams of leucine, I was just saw a presentation from uh, Lane Norton here the other day, and he was saying that if you had to pick a number for, you know, leucine amount with protein, uh, he's looking at probably two to three grams of leucine is probably a pretty effective dose. Um, so, again, you're looking at you know, a few grams of leucine, you know, in the Phillips study, a few grams of, you know, intact protein, and uh, appears to be pretty good. Um, I if well, let me ask you this. Duration was he as long, too, but. Okay. So was, was Lane talking about um, two grams would be the optimal spike with a normal 20-gram scoop of protein? Yeah, so he's looking saying? at, you know, if leucine is the main sort of anabolic driver, I think of it as like turning on the switch, right? So like the analogy of use at the assembly sure. line, leucine will turn on your assembly line, and then you still need the, the protein or amino acids, the raw materials in order to, to carry out the process. Um, so he was saying that to initiate it, you know, two to three grams of leucine is probably a pretty good dose to be at. So the Phillips paper that I was talking about, I'm sort of basing the brownie thing on, it looks like uh, they're saying a total leucine equivalent to the 25 grams of whey. So if you do some quick math, it looks like more like four or five grams when you're trying to boost this suboptimal dose, I guess is what I'm getting yeah. at, right? So if Lane says two or three grams might might be enough, okay, if you have plenty of other whey Correct. protein in the picture or yep. protein period. So maybe that maybe that trigger amount goes up from two to closer to four to five grams when you're doing the suboptimal yeah, I, I think thing, in the Phillips paper, they know. picked the dose to match what was normally in 25 grams away or pretty close to it, I think, so... Yeah. And you're always going to yeah. start with more and then titrate down because if you picked two grams and see no effect, you're like, oh, bugger. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but if I picked five, That's I knew true. I had enough. Yes. So if it was going to do something, it, it should have done it at that point. So. so anyway, so that's some news. That's some questions from the floor up there in Northern California. Thanks, Mike, for joining us. Oh, yeah, yeah, no no problem. If people want more information on me, they can just go to www.mike tnelson.com m-i-k-e-t-n-e-l-s-o-n.com and and get some free fat loss videos and stuff there too that's cool in fact i should i also mentioned some of the questions that we were addressing as general info for example from the nurse um in July, I'm going to have some slots open to actually work with individuals because some of these things they just require a more complete workup you know it's 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 very hard especially with someone they're dealing with all these different barriers you know to behavior change and that sort of thing and just to drop some information that's a good beginning but you know any kind of good you know nutrition counseling appointment if you want to call it that is going to help help the people in an ongoing manner you know so i will see a handful of people but listeners know i don't usually do that i just don't have a lot of time because i'm you know, I work full time. <laughs> so anyway. All right. Well, uh, thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the iRadio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, 
practical applications and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the liter literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here. I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however. Obviously, I haven't done it for that purpose. I did it because, like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.